So Luke chapter 15, uh, we started last week in Luke 15 with uh, a couple of short parables and now we're into the longer one at the end. Uh, this has probably been preached about more than any other portion of scripture, I would say, and written about. I have spent this week listening to uh, Gordon Fee, Daryl Johnson, Rick Watts, Tom Wright, Tim Keller, and got frustrated towards the end of the week because I ran out of time to listen to any more. I just wanted to to hear as much as I could from, from these great scholars and preachers. Tim Keller in particular is absolutely fabulous on the parable of the prodigal son. Fabulous. And has really influenced uh, a lot of my, my thoughts for today. Um, Let me just read the first three or four verses again. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, And he began to be in need. Charles Dickens called this the greatest short story ever written. And he knew a thing or two about about stories, both short and long. This last parable of the trilogy of Luke 15, where we've had the lost sheep and the, the lost coin. Now we have what's called the prodigal son. And it is absolutely dripping with gospel. This parable is crammed full of the good news and the character of God. And that's why we're slowing down and taking our time. The name that's given to it, I think, is unfortunate. The prodigal son. In my childhood, I saw this parable simply as an illustration of God waiting for lost sinners to return to him. It is that. It is that. But it is so much more than that. And that title that Jesus didn't give it, he didn't call it the the parable of the prodigal son. But that title has become sort of ingrained in culture that that's what it's about. And that's all that it's about. But it's about so much more than that. And we know that because Jesus starts by saying a certain man had two sons. (laughs) So it is not just about one of them. It is about both of them. Both of the sons leave their father and break his heart. One of them leaves to go to a far country. One of them leaves his father's heart while still living at home. So there are actually three points of contact into the story. There's the younger son who probably represents the tax collectors and the sinners that Jesus has tagging along in the background in Luke 15. There's the older son who probably represents the religious leaders who are also there And there's the Father, who is God. There's so many points of access. Don't limit it just to this spendthrift younger son. The word prodigal does not mean lost. It doesn't mean lost. It's it's got into our language again as as just if, if someone appears and you haven't seen them in a long time, you say, oh, there's the prodigal has returned. That's not what the word means at all. Not remotely. The word prodigal means to use your resources freely and recklessly, to be wastefully extravagant, to have or give something on a lavish scale. 
I could use the word to describe the amount of fresh cream that I would put on apple crumble. I would put on a prodigal amount. That's the word in its proper context. Prodigal. It's lavish. It's excessive to the point of being reckless and wasteful. Yeah? So this parable, yes, our younger son in the parable is excessive and he's wasteful and he's reckless. But there's somebody else in the parable who's excessive and lavish and reckless in in his use of his resources. And it's the father. The father is lavish and the father can be described as being prodigal if we're going to use the term as it should be used. So we could call this, although it doesn't sort of run off the tongue just as easily, we could call this the parable of the two lost sons and the prodigal father. But I can understand why that one hasn't hasn't stuck. In this parable, Jesus is going to show people the character of God. The first time I ever taught about this parable, it was the 24th of September, 2004. It was in the front room of 61, 61, 63 Castle Rise. Uh, God bless whoever's there now. And I remember titling the little study, Having a Right Perception of God. And the whole heart of it was the importance of having a clear biblical Jesus-influenced understanding of who God is. That that is so foundational that we know who he is and that this parable helps us to do that. We've got to remember the context from the first couple of verses. The tax collectors and the sinners are gathering around to hear Jesus. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law mutter and complain and groan and grumble. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Then we've got the three parables of lost things. One of 100 sheep gets lost. One of 10 coins gets lost. And now one of two sons is lost. In the parable, we're going to see idolatry, sin, consequences, repentance, grace, restoration, community, gospel, condemnation, and religion. And if that's not enough to squeeze into 23 short verses, there's another powerful undercurrent that I will only just tip my hat to because we spent 15 sermons on it last year. And it's the story of exile. Whenever somebody in the first century heard the story of a son abandoning his father, going off into a foreign land, prompted there by idolatry and by, by a broken connection with his father, who then is lovingly restored back to the land and back to the father, anyone in the first century hearing that would have thought, This is Israel going into exile in Babylon and being brought back out of exile by the Father and back to the land. And that's all in the parable as well. It is just genius. (laughs) It's genius. There is so much going on here and one Sunday morning just isn't going to do it. So it might take three. Tim Keller wonderfully, wonderfully describes an aspect of this parable as being an assault on community. Get that phrase into your head. An assault on community. 
or he also refers to the dissolution of family. Dissolution means whenever you formally end something. Dissolution. And he sees that there, there are two great assaults on the family in this parable. The younger brother launches an assault on his father and on the family. When he asks for a third of the estate... Now, you think two brothers, how is it a third? How does that work? The older brother got a double portion. So if there were two brothers, the older one was doubled and that made three portions. The older brother got two portions and the younger brother got one. If there had been three brothers, the older one would have been doubled up and that would have been four portions. And the, the older of the, of the three brothers would have got two of the four portions the middle brother would have got one and the younger brother would have got one. That's what double portion means. And in that, in that sort of culture and context, the older brother got the double portion. The younger brother, in this case, would have had a third of the estate. Quite a lot, okay? Uh, if you could just imagine the average, the average person, the average family maybe, and they own a home and whatever land that home is on, and, and it is then sold and split and a third of it is given to somebody, that's going to be quite a lot. Right? He had to be pretty reckless and wasteful in order to go and burn that up. But what he did here, what the younger brother did to go and ask the father for his inheritance while the father was still alive was unheard of. It was effectively to say, I wish you were dead. A guy called Kenneth Bailey is, is the sort of most often quoted scholar on this parable. He was a Presbyterian minister and he was a missionary in the Middle East for about 40 years. And he's, he's seen as being just like a global expert on first century Middle Eastern life. And how the teachings of Jesus would have landed with people who were listening to him in that context. And he has done research huge research into this parable. He has, I think, two books about the prodigal that might be arriving on our doorstep at some stage this week. And he said, this idea of a son asking his father for the inheritance while the father was still alive in that context would never have happened. Now, the father occasionally might have divided up his land and made that decision himself, but in that culture, it didn't happen. Remember, that culture is not our culture, all right? But it did not happen. There was probably no inheritance tax. And therefore, fathers didn't need to be savvy in the sort of later stages of life about giving gifts to their children to avoid them getting hammered by HMRC. This never happened. This never happened. And here's, according to Kenneth Bailey, what the father should have done to this son. Whenever the son came and asked him for a, a third of the estate, the father should have struck the boy on the face and drove him out of the house. That's what would have happened. It was shameful for the family. I want out of here. I don't want you to be my father. I want what's mine. I wish you were dead. You're taking too long about it. I'm gone. Horrendous. And the security of the family, you've got to understand, it is all tied up with the land. There's no money in the bank. There's no money in the bank. It's not cash. It's not like the father can, can go and get the calculator and, and divide up his, his assets and do a quick 
online bank transfer and say, all right, son, away you go. The family security was tied up to the land that they owned. And in order for the father to fulfill this request, he would have to sell his land that he had probably farmed and had probably been farmed in the family for generations. They had farmed this land. And it should have been then farmed by his son and his descendants for years to come. But now he's going to have to sell it. This was where they got their security. They didn't get their security from money in the bank or from a pension or from anything like that. They got it from the land that they owned and that they farmed. And in order to fulfill his son's request, dad was going to have to sell the land and split it up. He's going to have to see the security of his family compromised by this son. So the younger son's request can be seen as an assault on community, on the family. Not just, I want my stuff so I can go have a good time, but he actually is attacking the family. But he's not the only one attacking the family because the older brother who we'll get to in a week or two's time, he does it as well. (laughs) He launches an assault on family. And at the moment, towards the end of the parable, in in the, the last half a dozen verses, whenever the party's happening, it's the biggest party the village has ever seen. It's the biggest party the father has ever thrown. There's probably at least 100 people there. It is an absolute celebration. The older brother becomes angry and refuses to go. The greatest moment in his family's history. And he says, I'm not going in. (laughs) I'm not going in. He likewise launches an assault on the family. He says, I'm not going to be part of this family. I'm not. I'm the heir of two thirds of this estate. In fact, if the father divided, which he did, divided the estate at the start of the story, the younger son took his third liquidated it, turned it into cash, and away he went and wasted it all. The younger son got the other two-thirds, and it from that moment belonged to him. And I can imagine him saying to the father, this is mine, and we are not allowing him back onto it. If he's part of this family, I don't want to be part of this family. And as I say, we will get to the, the elder brother soon enough, and we'll revisit this. But there's a massive challenge in this church massive because in life relationships get fractured families get fractured friendships get fractured churches get fractured some people walk away into sin and the question is is there anyone in your life in your circle of influence family relationships whatever it may be And they've walked away into sin. Into sin now. Into sin. They've chosen to go and live a life of sin. If that person was to come back again in genuine repentance, would you dare say, you know, after them hurting you, hurting your family, taking your stuff like the elder brother has experienced, is there anyone and you would say, if that person's here, I'm not going to be here. That's the challenge. That's the challenge. Because that's what the elder brother did. He said, if that fella who has wasted your money, my money, lived in a way that brought shame on us, he's broken your heart, he's hurt the family, he's shamed the family. If he comes back in here, I'm not going to be here. That's wrong. (laughs) 
That's one of the biggest challenges that is in this parable. So we can see that the older son also launches an assault on community and on family. And and what's behind the assault? What causes it? We can see both of these boys are attacking community, attacking family. What's behind it? What's behind it is, give me my. Give me my. (laughs) It's idolatry that's behind it. And this will be the main theme for this morning's part of, of this parable, now that we've introduced it. Give me my. All along, this younger son is more interested in the father's stuff than he is in the father. He wants what the father can give him, but he does not want the father. It's like coming to church and wanting good sermons, good worship, good community, good soup, good crack, good prayer, health, financial blessing, all of the stuff that everybody does want. (laughs) It's like those things become elevated beyond the father himself. And the, the, the younger son says, I want what you can give me. Give it to me. I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm done. And it becomes obvious that the younger son has been using his father and using his father's things in order for his own idolatry to be nurtured. And his idolatry, the way it manifests itself is that he goes off to the foreign country and he lives like the devil. His idolatry works itself out in unrighteous living. Unrighteous. The older son, again, is very similar. Whereas the younger son says, give me my, whenever the older son is complaining towards the end of the parable and showing that he doesn't know his father at all, he says to the father, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Give me my, you never gave. Both sons attacking community and attacking family because of idolatry. Because they want stuff. And the older brother on that day of the feast of the celebration, that fattened calf would have fed about a hundred people. They did not eat meat on a daily basis. It was a rare delicacy. This was lavish. This was huge. And all the older brother can do is look at it and say, that's my calf. (laughs) It's my fattened calf grazing on my ground that belongs to me and you're not giving it to him. Idolatry is in his heart every bit as much as it's in the younger brother's heart. He wants stuff. He wants what the father can give him. He does not want the father. And the, elder, the, the younger brother, his idolatry comes out in unrighteous living. The older brother, his idolatry is self-righteous living. He's so proud of himself, keeping all the rules, doing everything right, never putting a foot wrong. That is his idol. He doesn't love the Father. Remember a song that we would have been singing maybe, oh goodness, eight or ten years ago. um, There there was a song, I can't remember any line of it apart from the, the, the chorus, said, Christ 
is enough for me. Now, don't you be reckoning yourself trying to get, figure that out in the next 20 minutes. You don't have to. But it's been on my mind regarding these two sons because the father wasn't enough for them. They wanted what he could give. He was not enough. And one of the challenges that we have to regularly, I think, assess our hearts and our lives with is, is Christ enough? If everything else was taken away, is he enough? Where are our priorities? What is important to us? What holds top position in our lives? Is it him? Is it the Father? Or is it what the Father can give to us? So idolatry is an assault on family, according to Tim Keller. You sometimes wonder in the Bible, why is idolatry such a big deal for God? Why does he get so ratty about idolatry? Why can we not just have a wee bit of stuff, you know, a wee statue in in the context maybe of the ancient world or just some some nice things that, that we can give a wee bit of our devotion to and a wee bit of our hearts to. As long as we give most of ourselves to him, why is it such a big deal? The reason God is so agitated, animated about idolatry is because it tears families apart. It tears community apart. It tears churches apart. Paul the Apostle has has a word for, a phrase for it. He calls it, in Philippians 2, he calls it selfish ambition. And he goes on in Colossians 3 to talk about covetousness, which is idolatry. One translation puts covetousness as selfish desires and greed, which is idolatry. James, the brother of Jesus, says in James 4, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires? The battle within you, you desire but do not have, so you kill. Idolatry, selfishness, selfish ambition, desires, covetousness, call it what you want. It wrecks community and it wrecks families and it wrecks the church. St. Augustine, there he is. Do you remember him? Looks like Santa. Reading his list. He's probably thinking about food there. He had a problem with food. St. Augustine had a problem with food and a problem with another physical appetite that we'll not just mention at the minute. But uh, St. Augustine called it disordered loves. Whenever the things that we love become all out of sync. David Paulison took the same idea and talked about inordinate desires. When good things become everything and start to take place of God in our lives. Idolatry is an assault on family when our desires rise up and take over. God wants a family. He wants a community. He wants a church. And he knows that the thing that will rip it apart from within is idolatry. That's why it's such a big deal. (laughs) What is it that you want? If you don't ever get it, is that okay? Everybody wants stuff. I want stuff. I want this place packed. I want it packed. I want it full from front to back and side to side and we're going to need a bigger boat. I want it packed. I want it crammed full. I want people streaming in. I want, you know, all those desires. Those are great desires. Those are godly desires that he's put in me. There's nothing wrong with those. But if that becomes the be all and end all, that that becomes more important than just having the Father. 
and having his presence. It's one of the things that Joel has, has sort of driven so much any time he's preached this year is about just going after the Father's presence and the weight of his glory and the significance of it, that that becomes and remains everything and that those other desires that are absolutely godly desires for the leader of a church in a town to have don't 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 rise up to top spot where if they're not fulfilled we're not happy (laughs) or i'm not happy he's enough the father has got to be enough otherwise the other things can become idols that could potentially tear the family apart so what will the father do and i'm drawn to a close and say we're, we're not doing one massive long morning on the prodigal we're going to just take our time what will the father do and i've pointed out that idolatry is tearing his family apart what will he do what would you do it says in in verse 12 after the younger son has asked for his share of the estate It says, he, the father, divided his property between them. He divided his property between them. Which in itself is another, you will see four or five things that the father does in this parable that are just not what fathers do. Because, you know, father is is a good biblical image for God, but there's no father on earth who is perfectly like God. And God does things that, that, that a first century father would not have done. He divided his property between the sons. To not, he should have beaten the boy. <laughs> should have beaten him and thrown him out. Didn't do it. He should have kept his property to himself and guarded the security of his family and the generations that would come after him. Didn't do it. He divided his property. And it's really, really interesting when you look at the word property. Because when you think, when I think property, I think land, buildings, possessions, maybe, um, physical things. That's not what it says in Greek. And this, this was new to me, but as I listened, every single person I listened to this week mentioned this. And I was like, oh my goodness, how have I got here without, um, without hearing that before? Where it says he divided his property, the Greek word for property is bios. Bios. Which, of course, is where we get biology. And that Greek word for bios means life. So we could, we could ask this question, idolatry is tearing the family apart. What will the father do? The father will tear his life apart in order to keep the way open for his wayward sons to come back to him. Idolatry is tearing the family apart. And what the father does is in response, he divides, he tears, he rips, he pulls apart his property. No, he pulls apart his bios. He pulls apart his life. He, you know, he could, have, he could have sold the land, given a third to the son and said, away you go, I never want to see you again. There's no way back. You'll never come back. Take it and leave. And he doesn't. It said, Jesus chooses his words carefully and he says, the father tore, pulled his life apart because by doing that, a way was kept open for the son to come back to the father's heart. 
And next week we will focus on the character of the Father. We might not even, next week we'll be talking about repentance and about confession, but we'll probably also be talking about the character of this Father. But now, just in the very first couple of verses, we're getting a glimpse of one who tears his life apart so that wayward sons and daughters can find their way back to him. Let's pray and let's worship.